Good evening, everyone. My name is Marcy Harris, and on behalf of Harvard Bookstore and the MIT Games Lab and Education Arcade, I'd like to welcome you to tonight's event with Jane McGonigal and Scott Osterweil as they discuss McGonigal's book, Super Better, a revolutionary approach to getting stronger, happier, braver, and more resilient, powered by the science of games. Before we get started, I'd like to take a brief moment to tell you about some of our other upcoming fall season events. On Wednesday, September 23rd, we'll be hosting Annie Jacobson in our store as she discusses her book, The Pentagon's Brain, An Uncensored History of DARPA, America's Top Secret Military Research Agency. And on Friday, September 25th at the First Parish Church, Elizabeth Gilbert will be discussing her latest book, Big Magic, Creative Living Beyond Fear. And tickets for this event are on sale now, both in our store and on eventbrite.com. And if, and if you'd like to learn more about any of our other upcoming events, please feel free to take a flyer on your way out or go to our webpage at harvard.com events. After the discussion is over, we'll have time for a question and answer session and book signings right outside this door towards the back of the hall. And you can purchase your copies of Super Better up at that little um, bar table right outside these theater doors. Now, as a reminder, tonight's book is 20% off, and your purchases help support this author series. So thank you all for coming tonight and for supporting Harvard Bookstore. Tonight's talk is being recorded for the Forum Network, a joint venture of WGBH and the Lowell Institute, and will be available online at forum-network.org and at harvard.com. And please note that during Q&A, your questions may be recorded. Thank you so much, everyone. Now please welcome the creative director of the Education Arcade, Scott Osterweil. Thank, thanks. Um, thank you all for coming. It's a real pleasure that uh, in the middle of a busy book tour, you managed to f uh, that Jane's managed to find time to come to MIT. We're, of course, really pleased to have you here. At, um, we are sort of proud of our role as the place where video games were first invented. So um, totally. we think it's great you're here. Um, just a quick w w word about Jane. Um, uh, and I'm going to use... Uh, just talking from my own personal experience, I started life as a game designer before I got involved in academics. And in, in the early days, it used to annoy me when um, people in the academic sphere um, were writing about games as if they were discovering all the stuff about games that people who were actually making games knew. But, um, but I later came to realize that those people who were making games didn't often talk about them enough. Um, Jane is that rare exception. Jane is a game designer. And if you haven't read about I Love Bees particularly, it's something I think you really should, because mm. she um, made a had a huge impact on the field in, in designing the, what is still the most seminal alternate reality game um, that's, that's yet been done. And so I think uh, if you're interested in the, in the subject, you should read up on it. But, but more importantly, um, Jane is not just a game designer. She's also someone who's written well and persuasively about games. And what, I've, what I came to realize is that uh, it isn't enough to design games. You need people who can talk about them in a way that sort of um, th that makes them understandable to a larger public. And I think no one has done that better than Jane. Um, mm -hmm. Particularly, uh, I'll just mention, along with reading about I Love Bees, you should really check out Reality is Broken, her first book, um, which I think makes a really powerful, the, I think the most cogent argument I know of for the, uh, in print for the value of games, um, most cogent argument addressed to a larger readership, not just to game scholars and fellow game makers. Um, so with that, I want to introduce the author of Reality is Broken and, and more recently, um, Super Better. Super Better. Yay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so thanks yeah. for coming. Thank you. And I should just say, it's funny, you know, being here at MIT, um, I actually got an award from MIT's technology review right after I did I Love Bees. Um, for you know, people changing the world under 35, and everyone else who won that award were doing really important things, like you know, inventing better cooking devices for young moms in sub-Saharan Africa. And I felt so underwhelmed by my own con contributions to society that after I got that award, I was like, "Ah, uh, we got to make games to save the world." And that was actually how I got down that path to what I'm doing. So it's kind of fun to to be here. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So um, 
So actually, with Reality is Broken, you sort of did, you moved from simply making the case for games to making a case for games in the context of social change. Um, I just mentioned parenthetically, I teach a class on that, and my class just read the first three chapters of that, and um, the conversation it sparked was terrific. I mean, so uh, it's still, you know, it's a cool. very stimulating book. Anyway, um, and now you're moving into a space more around the personal. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, when I was writing the first book, I was really thinking about how we could play games together as a society to tackle really global issues, poverty, climate change. Um, who wants to talk to me? My husband wants to talk to me right now. I think I should turn my phone off. How's that? Um, he says, hi, everybody. <laughs> Actually, he says, hey, baby, but... Uh, <laughs> um, so, uh, but wh while I was in the middle, uh, middle of writing that book, uh, I had a kind of life-changing experience, which was hitting my head and having a mild traumatic brain injury. Um, and I actually couldn't finish writing the book um, for a while and, uh, and had this really, you know, transformative experience where uh, instead of being, you know, the person I normally am, um, I couldn't think clearly, I, I couldn't work. I, I mean, I really wasn't able to get out of bed for a few months. Um, I had headaches every day, uh, nausea, vertigo, uh, and I was extremely depressed uh, and anxious. Um, and even uh, I started having suicidal thoughts, which um, I like to talk about because I didn't know this at the time, but one in three people who have a concussion will go on to have depression uh, and suicidal ideation. Um, so if it happens to you, uh, it's not you, it's the symptoms of the brain injury. And I think it's important people know that. Um, and uh, so while I was kind of at the lowest point, I, I still was able to think clearly enough. So old, old memories of, of the game research rattling around. And uh, one of the things I remembered, you know, was this great saying by Brian Sutton Smith, who's one of the classic scholars of play. And he wrote like 25, 30 years ago, uh, the opposite of play isn't work. Uh, it's depression. And uh, it's like, great, I am really depressed. <laughs> and I need to somehow use my knowledge of game psychology and game design to, to be more gameful as I'm trying to recover from this injury. So um, it's a long story, which some of you may have you know, heard before. So I, I won't belabor it. Um, but I wound up inventing almost like a role-playing game for myself and um, put the rules online. I started hearing from other people who were adapting the game uh, for their own challenges um, and, and for challenges worse than mine. I was hearing from people who were with a terminal cancer diagnosis, someone who just been diagnosed with ALS. I mean, people were playing with really serious challenges and they all talked about how they were feeling stronger and more resilient and, and, and their family and friends were understanding their challenges better. And I was so actually kind of confused by this um, because, you know, you know, working in games, um, people trivialize them. And even myself coming up with this, you know, I called it Jane the Concussion Slayer. That was my recovery game. Um, I felt like it would sound silly to people. It might sound absurd. Um, maybe was hesitant to talk about it in case people might, you know, make fun of it. Um, so that people who were facing much more serious challenges than myself, um, we're using the same game roles to try to be happy and engaged with their lives. Uh, I wanted to figure out why. So that set me off on five years of research, um, trying to understand what was going on. Um, and uh, I wound up reading, you know, more than a thousand scientific papers, um, uh, particularly from the field of post-traumatic growth, which is uh, what happens if you go through a traumatic experience and you wind up feeling as a result and stronger and happier and braver um, instead of just, you know, being, I don't know, kind of weakened by it. Uh, and uh, so all of that kind of turned into the book um, as well as having half a million people play the game in an online format so that I could collect, well, not so that I could collect data. We, they played it to help themselves. Um, but I was able to collect data on, um, on what they were doing in the game. And so um, now I have a really good idea of uh, what you can do to, to truly bring that same kind of energized, optimistic, totally focused, wholeheartedly engaged attitude that we bring to games to real life challenges. Um, and, and that's called the gameful mindset, which is, I think, the, the kind of the big idea at the center of the book. 
So um, should we uh, introduce that concept a little more to the audience? The game yeah, yeah. So um, you know, there's a lot of neuroscience in the book. Kind of um, Stanford University has done some really great research uh, putting gamers into fMRI machines so we can see the blood flow patterns. And there are lots of labs doing this. Um, but I got really hooked with the Stanford research. Um, and it turns out that uh, you can activate two regions of the brain that are really important to to motivation, goal achievement, and learning um, when, when you, whenever you play a video game. as a kind of the reward center, which uh, the more that, that part of the brain is lit up, the more likely you are to do whatever it takes to achieve your goal. Um, you won't give up when things get tough. Um, it, you really hang in there, and uh, that's why because that brain probably gets so activated when we play video games, that's why you can like fail a level a hundred times and you're like, I'm going to try again. I'm going to try again. Cause the part of your brain that's responsible for saying, don't give up is getting all the blood flow. Um, the reason why that happens in video games is that, uh, whenever you adopt a goal, uh, it starts to fire up. And every time you make progress towards that goal or get feedback on that goal, you get another kind of dopamine hit in that part of the brain. So every time you make a move in Candy Crush or fire a weapon in Call of Duty, whatever you're doing, uh, you're getting another dopamine hit, that area is getting fired up. Um, and then the hippocampus is also getting fired up, which is the part of the brain associated with learning and memory. And uh, uh, when that's really active, you're better able to learn and improve. You're paying a special kind of attention where you're processing feedback more effectively. Um, you'll remember what you're learning better. And so it's kind of like this powerful one-two punch where you're more motivated and you're actually paying better attention and learning faster. So you're more likely to achieve the tougher goals. So it's kind of this like well-founded optimism. There's a good reason to be optimistic. Um, so that's, uh, that's, that's the sort of the neurochemistry of the gameful mindset. And my interest now is how do you activate the brain in the same way, even when you're facing a real life challenge, not just in the video game. Yeah. Did you want to, uh, do we want to, should try we do, this? should we try to activate the gameful mindset? Yeah, okay. Um, you guys, you know that, uh, we could not come here tonight and not, play a game, right? Because that would be obscene. Um, so let's see if this mic's still on. Is this mic still on? Okay. So um, Scott and I uh, would like you to experience a gameful mindset. And the best way to do it is play a game. Um, and in fact, uh, the best way to fire up that particular positive neurochemistry is to play a game you've never played before because um, the hippocampus, the learning center, uh, the, the more you have to learn because you've never played it before, you've no idea how it works, you're going to start out very bad and then try to get better. Um, that really helps fire up that part of the brain. Uh, so in order to ensure that none of you have played a game before, I had to invent a new game. Uh, so last week I designed a game and we're going to play it. Um, it's kind of like Scrabble. Uh, everybody here knows how to play Scrabble, right? Uh, so we're going to play Scrabble, but instead of playing Scrabble, we're going to play massively multiplayer Scrabble. Um, or if you're more of a words with friends type, we're going to play words with 100 friends um, all in the same room. Uh, how to play. So everyone's going to get a letter. Does anyone not, did anyone not get a letter? You raise your hand. We'll make sure you get one. Okay, good. So everyone has a letter. Um, and then you're going to combine letters to spell words just by standing next to each other. Um, so it's just like Scrabble, except the whole room's your board. So Scott, like, you have a letter. What do you have? I've got E. Okay, I have M. So we can just go like this. And we have spelled me. And how many points do we get? Four points. Okay. All right. So um, I have some good news for everybody. By the way, you may have seen this in the headlines this spring. Scrabble dictionary updated for the... This is, these are legal words in Scrabble... I'm not kidding. You can play these words in the world championship. Lols, thanks with an X, wah. You know, like when you're texting someone, you're like, wah. Uh, <laughs> shoot. Emoji, obs, which is short for obviously, right? Uh, twerk and tweet. You have a question about that? Does why, can we only use two A's or can we add extra <laughs> 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 To make it worth more points? Uh, this is the legal spelling of the word in Scrabble. So, so. Just good. It's very good. It's very good. You're a gamer. I like it. Um, okay, so uh, it's not exactly like Scrabble um, in the sense that there are no turns. So uh, when I say go, everybody just tries to make words at the same time. Uh, you should embrace the chaos. You uh, only have 60 seconds each round. So just do whatever it takes. You can like stand on the chairs. You can shout. You can run around. Um, maybe if you're like looking for a Y, make a Y or like an O so you can like see across the room who needs what. There are three rules you need to know to play this game effectively. Uh, your letter is your letter. 
So whatever you have in your hand now, that's it. You can't trade it. You also cannot put all the letters in a pile and then just kind of stand back and watch somebody make words out of them. That, that's not how you play Master Mill Scrubber. Um, your tile must stay in your hands at all time, in fact. So if you put it on a chair or on the floor, it's out of the game. Uh, and then the last rule... Your letter can be in more than one word at a time because this is like Scrabble. So, you know, Scott's an M. If you need an M and you guys need an M, everybody make a big thing around Scott and he'll be in two words or three words. And, um, boy, that'll be good for you because you'll make lots of points. Um, and this is actually more of a hint uh, for how to be good at this game than a rule. Um, I would really like you to selfie your best words, um, and tweet or Instagram them. And then you can see, I'm doing this in cities, you know, all around the world this month. So you can see other words that people have made and see if your word is uh, better than their word. Um, we're going to play three rounds. Uh, at the end of 60 seconds, I'm going to start hollering at you to stop. That's the most, that's just make sure when you get really into this, that if you hear me going, stop. You stop. Uh, and we're going to do three rounds. Are you going to play, Scott? You bet. Okay, you bet. Scott's playing too. Uh, so if you need an M, you know I'm where to look. Knee. You're the M. Oh, you're an E, yes. <laughs> if you need an M, you know where to look. Okay, you have 60 seconds to do level one, which is make a word, any word, it must have at least two letters, go. Okay, everybody, stop. End of round one. Okay. Round. I don't like that microphone. Round one is over. Everybody, make sure you know how many points your word is worth. Take a selfie of your words. Okay. Uh, I want to hear some of the words that you guys made. What about over here? What did you make? Tin and no. What do you guys got back there? Banger and brag. What about in the back? Movie, books. What are you guys' words we got down here? What did you make? Jade and EQ. Okay. What about there? Nice, nice. Any other good words to report? Bloats. Bloats. Nice. Okay, good. All right, so you guys are awesome. Now we're going to advance to level two. Okay, think of the word you just made, and using other tiles in the room, use that word in a sentence. Just kidding, that's actually level 200. Okay, uh, we're going to do level two, which is make a word worth at least one more point than the word you just made. Go. I'm an M. No, that's not going to help. You need to find your you. Yeah. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Round is over. By a show of hands, 
How many people were able to make a word worth at least one more point? All right, that's what's like a, at least a 50% success rate. I'm feeling good. Okay, you guys, now that we are like excellent at this game, we advance to co-op mode. Uh, it is now all of us against the internet. Here's what I have done. I just went on Twitter and asked all my followers to come up with the most diabolical words that they could think of for you guys to spell. Uh, three letter, four letter, and five letter words. So here are all my friends on Twitter who are trying to get you spelled words. Here is a kind of cleaner list for you to see. Now before we start, Let's be gameful. Does anyone have any strategies? Our goal is to spell as many words on this list as we can collectively. What would be some good strategies for trying to do this? Anybody? Yeah, go ahead. Great. Put put vowels in a group. Where do you want to put the vowels? Um, here, because I have a vowel. Okay, that's that's that that's one idea. Uh, any other strategies? Go ahead. You could line up alphabetical order. Good. What else? Uh, cheater, not in the rules. What else? <laughs> Go ahead. Awesome. So let's try to be in the columns of the words. That's a really good one. Um, what else? Any other ideas? I feel like those are the best strategies that exist. You guys have figured them all out. Okay, so I'm going to give you 60 seconds. Now, the world record so far at NYU last night, they made um, nine words on this list. So, uh, but they had 500 people. So I feel mathematically you need to get at least three on this list to basically beat them. Uh, you have 60 seconds. Go. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. All right, the round is over. How many words did we get? Anybody word over here? What do we got? Booyah. Kind, booyah. That's a good one. What do we? Any other words? Tag. That's three. Wooden end. That's five. Girl. That's six. Din seven. Any others? That is really good, you guys, though. Like, mathematically, by ratio, you guys beat uh, you beat you. Very good. All right. Uh, congratulations. Keep your tiles, because there's going to be one more game mission later on. Okay. Okay. That was good. So, I mean, the, the last thing, I'll just I'll say a little bit about the game, and then we'll, yeah. Um, so... Scott, I'm going to philosophize with you for a yeah, little bit. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so one of the things that I think you and I are both interested in is popular perception of games and play, and mm -hmm. you know why is there so much phobia about games or so much anxiety about play? Um, and in, in thinking about uh, wanting people to be more gameful in everyday life, even though they say games are a waste of time, um, one thing I came across is the phrase "I'm game." Um, so if somebody says "I'm game," Like, what does that mean to you? It means they're ready for anything. Ready for anything, yeah. right? They're like optimistic. They're they're willing to try. Yeah. Um, they're 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 going to be fully engaged. Um, and everybody knows what that means, and we use that in popular discourse. Um, so even though we have a lot of anxiety about games and we worry that they're a waste of time, we also have this popular phrase that everybody uses that we know means a pretty positive psychological state. Um, so, and this is sort of kind of a list of things that I think it means uh, if, you're, if you're willing to be game, right? You're willing to challenge yourself. It makes it easier to focus your attention, learn something new, be creative, be in the moment, get energized, team up with others. You have like a little experience of improving, succeeding. Um, do you guys feel like in playing a game that this sort of 
we, we just did these things, right? Um, so one of the things that we've tested with Super Better is um, does playing a game, activating this gameful mindset, and then thinking about your real-life challenge help you kind of move the dial on bringing the gameful mindset to your life? And it does. So I just wanted to encourage everybody. Um, we're going to spend 10 seconds. You, we'll do it too. Yep. Think of a goal that you're pursuing in your life right now or a problem that you're kind of working on or a challenge that you're dealing with um, because you just have activated a really powerful mindset. Um, and as long as you've got that, we should take advantage of it. So we're just going to think for 10 seconds. Just, just focus in your mind um, on whatever that, that goal or challenge is. Okay, so that's good. Um, that's just that's just a little bonus of coming out tonight. That you you might you might get a little of that gameful mindset with that. Um, yeah. So what else should we talk about? Well, so um, <laughs> I know they're all set. They're ready to go and take on the world. Yeah. So actually, one of the things that's interesting. I mean, thinking about this issue of uh, sort of our sort of approach and avoidance of games, um, we don't. One of the things I like to point out. Uh, to my students is that, in fact, the oldest known playing pieces are twice as old as the oldest known writing. Oh, that, in yes. fact, games have been part of our culture um, s since long, I mean, before we were literate, we were playing games. And it may be that what's changed is that with the uh, um, emergence of video games, we're suddenly much more aware of the game playing we're doing. Mm. And it comes with the uh, and every new technology always elicits yes. fear. And so this combination of fear of new technology and sudden awareness of games, suddenly we sort of have a different attitude toward games than we've ever had before. And I, I mean, I can, I, the anxiety, you know, it makes sense in that games are more accessible. You know, you can play anywhere, anytime. You can play by yourself, which, which is a kind of a new invention uh, in terms of games. Um, you know, I don't think they used to worry that games were socially isolating because you were always playing right. with somebody else, right? right. Um, and so I'm, I'm sure that that sense of games taking someone away from another interaction or being present in the moment, the, the screen anxiety we have, um, I mean, it, it does make sense um, why that exists. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think there's a, a slightly more insidious thing, um, not to try to be too political about it, but I think... We are, the dialogue, in, I think, in our society is ever more amped up around productivity and yes. effectiveness and um, uh, the way I like to think of it as being a part of the machine. And yeah. in effect, when you're playing a game, you're not part of the machine. Yeah. And, and, and so it's interesting because this book kind of somewhere fits weirdly in between that, um, in that, you know, I think some people could say, wait, why do games have to make us better? You know, play, play is a natural and beautiful thing. Games are art. Um, why does it have to be about, uh, you know, improving our state of mind? Mm -hmm. Or, um, I, mean, I, there, I mean, there are even studies in the book where um, we talk about things you can do, like playing, playing this kind of game at the right time will increase your work ethic if you want, if you want that. Um, so it is kind of weird. I feel like, I feel like I'm kind of, on one hand, trying to defend play as this inherently beautiful thing, but but also in a way it says um, that there can be a purpose to it, um, even though I believe that game play is its own, you know, worthy and valuable activity. Um, I think it also exists now as a solution to some problems that we don't have good solutions for. Um, you know, things that we aggressively treat with medications that might have a lot of side effects or don't always work or don't work better than placebo um, or, you know, even some simple as like, I, 80% of um, people who deal with depression in the United States don't receive any form of treatment for it, not, not counseling, not therapy, not medication. Um, so uh, it's interesting to, for me to try to figure out, you know, how do we, how do we move games towards being useful without devaluing the inherent value of play without it having right. to be useful. I mean, the, the funny thing, of course, is that you can't, and it's actually an interesting question because one of the things I think is true about play is you can't make anyone play. Oh, yes, that's true. And once you make someone play, they're not playing. That's and right. once you make someone play a game, they can go through the motions of yes. a, a game, but they're not actually 
playing. Right. Well, why don't you share our favorite definition of a game? Because you and I have the same favorite right. definition. Right. It's, um, it's Bernard Suits who said that uh, a game is the voluntary overcoming of unnecessary obstacles. Yeah. I mean, I think it is a perfect definition it's of a game. It's absolutely perfect. Yeah. Every word is significant. Voluntary. And of course, what I'm talking about is voluntary. A game has got to be voluntary. Yeah. Um, but the, and I think the thing is actually the question I've always had, and I think you're, you're talking about the, the uh, research um, helps me think more about uh, think more clearly about it is, and, and in examples like this, like look, think about how noisy and loud and engaged we were playing a game that we knew was pointless yeah. after all. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, all games are pointless, and yet we get we get so invested in playing any game. I, I in, in the moment of playing a game, our will bends toward playing a game. I think. Yeah, um, yeah. and it's interesting the, the the element of the definition that has turned out to be really useful in marrying some of the scientific research with with like our intuitions about why play is is so good yeah. and helpful um so the 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 voluntary aspect and the unnecessary obstacles um if you look at the research literature, there's all of this research on something called a challenge mindset versus a threat mindset. Um, in everyday life, uh, when you face obstacles, you can approach it with two different kinds of mindsets. The challenge mindset, you know something bad might happen. You, know, you can't control the outcome necessarily. But instead of worrying about possible negative outcomes, you are able to identify possible positive outcomes and ways that you could try to improve or get better at facing the challenge. And you're not just thinking about the outcome. You're thinking, what can I do today to improve my ability to deal successfully with this challenge? Um, and with a threat mindset, you're thinking exclusively about all the bad things that can happen. You know, anxiety, you, could, you might be embarrassed, something, you know, you might, you might lose and, and then there might be consequences to that. Um, and whenever we play a game, it's, it, we're always in a challenge mindset um, because, um, I mean, you're, you're never thinking about, you know, nobody sounds as I'm going to be so embarrassed if I lose right. this game, or I, I can't, I can't take it to the hit to my self-esteem if, if I lose. I mean, if you do, you should be playing a different game because right. um, you. It's just that's not. And that's, that's what people do. In fact, they find yeah. the games that they're willing to rise to the challenge. For. Yes, rising to the challenge, and that that idea of you know the game gets you to rise to this challenge. And I mean, I play tennis with my husband, you know, every weekend, and he's really tall and strong and beats me basically six love, six love every time we play. Um, and I like to play that game because it forces me to constantly be focused on, well, how can I get better and improve, even though I'm, no, I'm going to lose and, and be embarrassed? Um, and, and that challenge mindset, even though it's, it's so easy to adopt in a game, it turns out to make a tremendous difference on, you know, we can handle more stress without having physical effects. For many, stress can cause, you know, Ill, physical effects and illness and you can handle more stress and bounce back faster and, and learn more. And um, so it's, it's, it's it, it, if we can figure out how to go so easily into that mindset, which we all already have all the time when we play games, it's not something new you have to learn. You just have to be able to know what it feels like so that you can say, wait, am I in a challenge mindset with this real life challenge? And so that definition, you know, I use that definition in the book yep. um, to try to explain that. And uh, thank goodness for... Bernard Suits. Oh, I know. A great philosopher. Um, his, his, the, the main example he uses is golf, which, if you think about it, is the single most absurd game imaginable. <laughs> picking, picking the single hardest way possible to get a small ball into a small hole, um, which is, of course, itself a pointless exercise. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's right, the opposite of efficiency. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I see in kids' play, which to me is, and, and, and uh, the challenge mindset, which is not a way I'd ever thought of it before. Um, you set a little kid down to play a game, and they will say, oh, I'm good at this, even oh, yeah. if they've never played it. Yeah, yeah. When I start demoing games, somewhere around the age 21 or 22, no matter who I'm demoing it with, they say, oh, I'm not very good at games. Oh, interesting. I mean, it's sort of people, we, uh, I mean, and my work is around education, and I mean, to me, the horror is that the education system largely Takes drills that out, out of us. Yeah. Now, that's interesting. I, I would be really curious to think about why that is, because, you know, are those people who don't normally play? Because I, I feel my experience of most people who regularly play games are actually more likely to yeah. be like, oh, yeah, I'm, oh, I get this. I totally get this. That's I got true. it. That's yeah. um, which, is, uh, which is the nature of the game, right? It's constantly, it's, it's, it's giving you positive feedback in the sense that you get to be bad at it first. And then as soon as you do something right, you get that, that powerful yeah. reinforcement. 
it may be as much as setting, which is sometimes you ask someone to, to try a new game and they're, you're there watching yeah. them and they're suddenly yeah, yeah. self-conscious yeah, yeah, yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Yes, yeah. That's a good point. But it's true. But I think, but I think um, more broadly it's true. I mean, in that people, by the time we get out of school, we talk about all the subjects we're not good at anymore. We're not good at yes. math. We're not good at history. We've, yes. we've sort of taught ourselves. We, we've been taught really well that we're not good at those challenges. Well, I mean, that's, don't get me started on public education. Yeah. I just, I have, I have my first two daughters, they're, um, they're six months old and I'm already panicking about what I'm going to do for them for school because I don't want them to be in schools where you can only take a test once right? Because that's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and where they have to study things that they're not interested in, um, or good at. <laughs> right. I mean, we, and we, I mean, we have colleagues, uh, who are working on alternative yeah. models of school. Yeah. So yeah, I guess yeah. the question is whether they'll, whether they'll advance enough in time for your daughters. I know. I'm, but by the time my kids are in school, I will probably have decided that's what I have to do next is, is invent a school. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just wait for it. <laughs> Are you, so you, you mentioned to me that you're already thinking about games f uh, f for, your, for your daughters. I, I bring this up. Um, I felt just, so this is not just a question I would ask because uh, Jane happens to be a woman. I felt that my own interest in, in things that led me into games came from the interests that I developed when I had young children. Mm. So mm -hmm. I'm just curious whether you see having kids as having an influence on the way you're thinking about games. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm designing games for them. They're, I mean, so they're, they're six months and um, they're not super magically developly, like developmentally advanced. So they're not able to actually play real games yet. Um, but uh, would you like to know like the most amazing game that I invented that I'm sure actually parents have invented uh, before? Um, it's called the high five game. Uh, you want to play it with me? Yeah, sure. Okay. High five. High five. Uh, as many times as you can do it yeah. uh, without falling over. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it, what I like about this game is that uh, it's actually very hard for my babies to control their hands. Uh, and then they just laugh and they can't do it anymore because they're laughing so hard. Um, I feel like that should be the inspiration for some video games. Yeah. If there's anyone in here designing video games, please take that lovely experience of a baby laughing from trying to high five and make it into a video game for us. I love it. I love it. Um, I know that they uh, that there are probably. I'm just looking at the mindful of the time and thinking that there may be questions. Oh from yeah, the audience. let's and do so questions. I would like to talk longer, but I, but I know we. Yeah, we, let's. let's we told let's folks we talk would talk with these people. Yeah. Um, so we, now, because of the lighting, we can barely see you. So if you like that, yeah, okay. Uh, so, first of all, thank you for Reality's program. No, uh, yeah. That was a huge inspiration. So I teach at Berkeley College of Music, and I train other college teachers. And we got into a map. I, I have to respectfully disagree with the idea that the game has to be voluntary. Oh. We are all getting our students to learn faster and do more under the guise of things being a game hmm. than we are by telling them to do homework. And they have no, it's, they, there's, there's no opting in. It's like, this is the only way to take no, the course. Say, do you want to do the regular, well, we will all. Oh. Different disciplines are saying, hey, we could play this game, and if you win, there's no homework. Oh. But, but we don't, or we could just have a regular class. Oh, so they are, so it is voluntary then. Yeah. The funny thing is, they do more work preparing <laughs> sure. for the game than they would normally. And they do more, that what they don't realize is that we're grading them. And they get really good grades with the games, better grades than they would with the test. Yeah, that makes sense. And so it, so between the research you shared in that book and uh, Michaela uh, Csikszentmihalyi's oh, yeah. work on flow, which I'm just obsessed with, I think there needs to be a lot more talk about how games are already being successfully used in educational context, even if there's not a physical game or a video game made for it, there are all sorts of very easy... Well, let me empower you to help do this. So have you ever... Have you documented this? Yeah. Okay. Have you sent the documentation to the organization Games for Change? No. Okay. So Games for Change is a great nonprofit where they curate successful examples of video games and also uh, educational games that are having a positive impact in society. So um, anybody here who's working on anything that has had some success, send to gamesforchange.org uh, any, you know, if there's a website, if you can just send them materials you've used, um, and they will help 
amplify that message. Um, and it's a good place to find inspiring examples, too. And if you're doing that, you might as well also send it to the Cooney Center, um, yes. which was uh, an outgrowth of Sesame Workshop. Um, uh, C-O-O-N-E-Y, named for Joan Gantz Cooney, who invented Sesame Street. Mm -hmm. So That's a good one. Yeah. Um, I actually think, I mean, the question is there, I, I still believe you can't force someone to play. I think what, what, what I think we realize is that if we put really interesting objects in people's paths, they will tend to engage with them. I, I don't think anyone should design a game with the hope that 100% of the students you introduce it to will play it or play it uh, enthusiastically. But if we had more of them, then we don't have to worry about which one appeals to whom. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I, if I can say, this actually makes, I don't know if anybody is as geeky as I am, but uh, for Superbetter, we wanted to run a clinical trial and we wanted to run randomized control trial um, to see if uh, we could validate it for, um, uh, for depression, yeah. for traumatic brain injury. Um, and uh, we did, by the way, the results were, were great. But um, uh, it was uh, hard to figure out how to design that study because normally in a controlled trial, you sign up for the trial and then you get assigned to a case. If you're in the game case, you have to play the game. And if you're you know, in the placebo or, or the control, you don't. Mm -hmm. So to have to tell people who signed up, this is what you have to do, you have to play the game, it does make, you know, it, it, you wonder if that has you know, any effect yeah. on their ability to feel like they're rising to the occasion. Right, so that's something for people interested in design of scientific studies. Um, I would love to have conversations about, you know, how do you run these really, you know, rigorous trials while still letting people. I mean, I guess, yeah, it's yeah, an interesting right. challenge. I mean, it's actually the one question I had, which is that I'm assuming you largely selected in for people who had some impulse to play super better. Um, did you have any well, experience no, with we people didn't. who were I mean, disinclined to play? We, well, for the, the clinical trial with OSU, um, we, that was for uh, patients between 15 and 21 years old with traumatic brain injury. And uh, when they would come in through, you know, through OSU, they would be asked if they wanted to participate. Um, so they did have to say yes in that way. But um, there was no reason to think that anybody we asked. I mean, they had they basically everyone who came through enrolled because if you have if this is for all people who've been concussed for more than a month, yeah. you're like, please, whatever will help. Um, and for the for the the study with Penn, um, it was just people who were already diagnosed as cl clinically depressed and who were interested in trying a new uh, a new sort of method for feeling better. Um, but not not selecting for game, you know, mm -hmm. people. So, uh, but maybe even just the act of signing up for a study feels like the voluntary, yeah. you know. So, yeah. Anyway, that's just. I just thought you might be interested in the challenges of that. It's, it's different than signing a different kind of approach. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the field has suffered from. Would you like uh, some water? Okay. The need, the need for randomized control trials when sometimes what we're doing is yeah. better understood qualitatively than quantitatively. But uh, Yes, I know. But, but I, I can't get doctors to prescribe it unless I give right. them a trial. <laughs> um, other questions? I see one there. And by the way, if you're in the back, really gesticulate wildly. Otherwise, I won't see you. But I see one right here. Um, my question is, is that for you, is there an objective hierarchy for like, the quality of games? Or is it really subjective to the individual as to what they find within that game? Oh, yeah. Pretentious way. Are there games out there that are like, oh, that, that really gives the game community sort of a bad name? Oh. Like, oh, I just give my game super better at that. <laughs> I've only in my whole life ever played one game that I just was like disgusted with humanity for. I don't even remember what it was. I got it as a gift. It was a game. Someone here may know the, the name of this game. It's like Naughty Bear. That's the name of the game. Do you guys know Naughty Bear? Okay, you play as like a stuffed bear who is sad that you weren't invited to a birthday party, so you decide to take homicidal revenge and like really brutally murder all the other little stuffed animals. It made me feel so bad yeah. playing this game. Um, that's the only time I've ever had that reaction. Um, in general, I think that um, uh, I always focus on the the challenge rather than the content. I'm kind of, I'm almost like content blind, which I think makes people probably think that's 
frustrating. I, some people would say, Why? what do you mean it doesn't matter that you're shooting people or you know, beating people up? Um, because for me, the only thing that's interesting about a game, really, is what are you being challenged to do? What are the constraints on that? You know, what are the, the strategies? What are the skills? What are the social elements? Um, to me, all games are like abstract systems in that way. Um, so, and I think, I think the things that people tend to worry about with games are the, is the content. Um, and from my point of view, looking at the scientific research, the content has almost nothing to do with whether it impacts you negatively or positively. Um, so, uh, and there are mechanics that can have kind of, ne- you know, n- negative effects. Like if you design a game that is skill-based and, uh, and, and, uh, and yet really frustrating, uh, you know, bad user interface, people will be bad at it, get frustrated. Um, you know, it can raise, uh, it can raise testosterone and uh, make people act like jerks. So, um, those are the kinds of things that I worry about, but it's, it's always at the abstract. So I, you know, and Monopoly, whoever designed Monopoly, um, is a terrible person. Although I recently, I I mean, because I, it's a very it's it's a poor it's it's a, it's, it's a very poorly designed yeah. game that makes people dislike each other. Yeah, really. I mean, really. Well, although it's it's interesting to me, that, and I just read an article pointing out that people play it a lot and they play it enthusiastically. And I guess I would until argue, the end, and then they hate it, and they say we'll never play this again, and then they yeah. forget. It's like having children; you yeah. forget <laughs> how bad it is, so that you can. Do I it think again. it's about what play is about, which is that we make you know, in, in the end. Every good game really lets us make our own game. And so I yes. think if a group of people get together and they enjoy playing Monopoly, yeah. they've made the game that they want to make out of it. And that's true. Well, it, especially it, if you can negotiate side deals that's and that right. sort of thing. No, but, and but, nobody but, plays Monopoly the way the rules are no, written. No, it's right. Which, but, in fact, people are inventing the game that they like rather yeah. than the game that's in the box. But can we just, let's, I mean, let's just yeah. be clear. Like with Monopoly, it starts out fun because everybody's on an even playing yeah. field, anything can happen, there's some luck involved. But then you're forced to keep playing after it becomes so mathematically imbalanced that it becomes impossible for anybody but the person right. to win. And you are forced to keep playing. And it's like going through the motions and the charades, which is why a game like Mario Kart is so much better. Yeah. Because, uh, and that's, you know, people who research this, like Daniel Cook does great research on this, trying to figure out how do you design multiplayer games where the players won't be mad at each other at the end. And, and one of the things that he has deduced and shown um, in his research is uh, in a skill-based game, you should always have a little bit of luck so that people um, but but and that balances it so people who are behind can come ahead um, because uh, then people don't get mad at each other right. when they play and I so to round back to that question I think we should make games that people uh, don't get mad at each other um, as a result of playing and and there Deliberate. are there are design mechanics you can implement to make that more possible no question um, interestingly enough and uh, when when people sort of start talking about games that are bad or bad for the games industry, I mean, I think it's worth analogizing with other cultural practices like books or movies. I mean, can you think of a book that somehow invalidates books? Fifty or- Shades of Grey. <laughs> Fifty Shades of Grey. Right. I'm just kidding. Right, right. I've read all of them, so yeah. I'm not. I'm not no, there, judging. <laughs> yeah, no, but there is. In other words, there is. Um, we we in the game community shouldn't have to defend ourselves against based on one. You know what, what the worst game is out there. Yeah. I mean, Mein Kampf was a book. I don't think anyone. You know, I don't think that that's what we der- derive from that is that we shouldn't read. Yeah, yeah. that's a yeah. good. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That's good. I think I saw a question way back there, but I can't. Back behind the ear. Oh, yeah, you're good enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so uh, going back to the question of voluntary, so uh, before coming back to MIT, I worked for a bit with Second City, going into workplaces and helping Mm -hmm. improvisation. Mm -hmm. And you you might see signs on the subway advertising similar stuff all over the all over the country in the major metropolitan areas. Cool. Uh, Not everybody is super into that. When you get there, sometimes it's kind of an order from on high. Yes. Yeah. I mean. The people leading it really believe in the training. They think it's yeah. valuable when you talk about positive psychology, a gameful mindset. So my question to you would be, if you if you went into yep. a workplace, yeah. if you were given two hours, you're, you're not the CEO, but you're some sort of outside influence, and you were met with like maybe not this sort of receptive environment, but yeah. a hostile environment, oh, yeah. people working on their own interests and projects. Yeah. What would you do to help them, really to make them get more like what you're saying. Like, what yeah. Well, I mean, let me, well, and by the way, I find improvisational, like the, all those 
games like terrifying. I don't, I, I've like, oh, I don't, I don't, so I can relate to that. Um, uh, I mean, what I would do if I were going in with things like that um, is uh, to implement a large number of meaningful choices for people to make. Um, because um, anytime you allow somebody to self-select, they're going to get more into that mindset of voluntary and, and unnecessary obstacles. So I would, I would start with a very wide number of things that one can do. Like here are like five things um, that we're going to do for like the next 10 minutes. Pick one. Or here, you know, and then, and then the next round is like, here are four different things that you can do. And then here are three. And to eventually, then you can get to whatever you wanted everybody to do. But you've sort of um, given people the chance to feel. And including um, when I play games, this one I didn't do because it's, um, it's easier for people not to play. But I do other games with, with talks where um, people might feel more uncomfortable jumping in. So I would say... Um, and if you'd prefer, you could be, uh, you could document this for us, you know, like take photos with your phone or something. So you give somebody a role that is outside a performance because the people, the reason why improv is scary is that it's performance anxiety, right? Um, and in the game we had, people aren't really watching you. You could be bad and not spell a word and nobody knows. But with improvisational exercises, you really feel that kind of performance anxiety. So I'd say, you know, give people meaningful choices and then also create a meaningful role for an observer who will have some goal or purpose uh, in the proceedings um, and, uh, and still have that experience of like, you know, su succeeding and contributing to the group. Um, find something really meaningful for observers to, to give to the group. Wouldn't you do that? That's what you would do, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay. Um, and it actually raised an interesting question for me. So you, your PhD was in performance studies. Yeah. <laughs> so did you enter it thinking you were going into games or did you have no. something else? What were you thinking? I was going to study physicists um, and how particularly quantum physicists collaborate and communicate their research to the public. And I actually went, at the end of my first year of graduate school, I went to Italy to like live in this commune of physicists in the, like the mountains where there were more feral cats than people in this town. And they had all, they would bring in all the, like the, the best quantum physicists around the world and um, do these really weird, you know, things to like try to collaborate and learn from each other. Um, and, uh, and then after that, I went and walked through the Swiss Alps like by myself for 10 days and decided um, uh, to study games instead. <laughs> <laughs> One reason was that nobody was that interested in that research topic. Um, and then I wound up writing a seminar paper about uh, the first alternate reality game, uh, The Beast for the Artificial Intelligence. And yeah. I just was like, oh my God, I'm taking this course and I don't know what to write about. And uh, I'm gonna write about this game instead that I played. And when I would present on it in class and we had, we had a conference for the department, everyone was like, what? This is the crazy thing I've heard of. And then my professor was like, please come into my office and spend three hours explaining this more. And everywhere I went, everyone was so interested. And I thought, uh, I'm gonna take a hint. And, <laughs> and focus more on games and less on um, the commune of quantum physicists, <laughs> which is something I advise everyone in this room yeah. to do as well. <laughs> Although I gotta say, this image of a commune of uh, quantum physicists in Italy <laughs> is kind of intriguing. There's a screenplay there. There is. Um, I see a question out there. I, I, I haven't... Uh, Yes, I'm sorry. I just haven't. I'd love to call on a woman if there were any. I'm not seeing any women because yeah, so far it's all ladies. been guys. But uh, yeah, there yeah, you okay. Go. I, uh, do you have any advice for uh, someone who's like just getting started in game design and like doesn't really know what to do? Oh yeah. Knows that she really wants to make games. Yeah, great, great. I'm, I'm sure you have advice too. Here's two really practical pieces of advice. I'm so one are you on Twitter. Okay, so, uh, and it, people validate if this is true or not, but the game industry and game researchers are extremely active on Twitter. They, they do more supporting each other, sharing ideas, recruiting each other on Twitter than I think any industry in the world. Um, so you should get on Twitter, follow everybody you can find doing interesting game stuff, and uh, tweet at them constantly with what you think is good or interesting that they're doing. This is, I always give this career advice to people in game industry. A lot of people, I think, get sidetracked by getting into debates and critiquing things they don't like. But what I find as a professional, and the way that I, the way I got hired to work on my first ARG was uh, by writing a research paper about 
the previous ARG and saying, you guys are amazing. Did you know that you're creating a form of collective intelligence that's never existed before and they might be able to, you know, work with the government to stop crime or whatever? Um, so tweet at people and tell them what you think about their work and just be uh, develop your voice as a for whatever you enjoy in others, shine a spotlight on it and have, you know, put your positive opinion so people will know what you like. So they'll share things with you and they will, you know, it, it's a good way to attract people. The other thing is uh, go to game jams. Um, and, uh, and if there are no game jams, uh, throw a game jam and invite people that you met on Twitter. I mean, the only other thing I would say is, um, I, I know there's a temptation, particularly when you're young, to think about what, what job can I get that will help me advance in this career? And I would say, don't think about the job. Just make games. Yes. Just find ways to make games. If yeah. they're, you know, they're either do it yourself if it's a tabletop game, or find someone who programs if you're not a programmer. And but just do it. Don't worry about how bad they are. After all, I mean, what we what you say about games is the way we should really approach life, which is to say we fail early and yeah. often and repeatedly until until we suddenly are not failing. And so, um, just make them. Um, and it doesn't and, have to be a video game to start right. either, because. Every game designer I know, no matter what genre or platform they work on, also makes you know card games and board right. games and and physical space games. So um, that's another way to start sharing your work with the world. If you don't feel like you like you know where you're where the technology is yet, just start making other kinds of games too. Yeah. Hi. Hi. First, thank you so much for being here. Mm. Uh, I make educational games for kids, and so I am just very excited about these positive impact on people's lives. Uh, one of the things that we've really seen in the past year or so is that games also has a flip side where they can unfortunately breed a really negative, really toxic, really virulent culture. Some studios such as Riot have made really great strides in implementing some mechanics to sort of yes. better behavior yep. in our community. And so I would just love to hear your take on mechanically what can we do as game developers in the future. The impact we're having in the community we're building is a positive, wonderful place instead of kind of this toxic. Yeah, I know. You write about that a little bit in the book, so. Do uh, I? What do yeah. I? What do I say in the book? <laughs> <laughs> Just when you're talking about the different mindsets in which people actually enter in, into games. And, yeah, um, I mean, I was thinking very practically. Like the best example that I've seen in the last few years is in that game company's game Journey, um, which I mean, I don't know if this is a famous story, but now everyone knows it or not. Um, but um, there used to be mechanics in the game where you could push things out of the way, like to move a rock or something. Um, and then they found that players were like pushing each other off the cliff, um, which has no value in the game, does not advance you towards the goal, but it was just, oh, it's a mechanic that you can do and, and then kind of screw with people's progress in the game. Um, and so they decided to redesign the game that so that none of the, um, to advance, you did not have to push anything because they said, oh, eh, we don't want to, we're really trying to foster a much more sort of positive and contemplative social dynamic. And so it's incumbent on us, the designers, to remove you know, any possibility and really um, allow the players to um, fully push on the limits of the world without um, doing the kinds of things that, that we're, we're trying to have them not do. And so I think, you know, you have to be, you have to accept responsibility for all of the boundaries of your world. And, uh, you know, that's when I design my games, I do it with things like, uh, you, you know, I had a, I had a, uh, I ran a game that was basically like the first MOOC, I think. I mean, we had like 20,000 uh, students in this game online social enterprise course. And um, the, the World Bank wanted to use leaderboards. Um, the World Bank had hired me to make this game. They wanted to use leaderboards so they could find the, the best players and um, lavish them with mentorship and really great um, ways to help you know, bring them. A lot of these players were in developing areas of the world. And, uh, but then we had the leaderboards and it, people started you know, exploiting things to get points. And it was a really negative. And we wanted them to be collaborative and make allies. So we invented leader clouds instead, which I, I, I haven't seen a lot of other people do this. But no, I keep I trying to tell people about it, um, where you have uh, sort of randomly displayed at any time, it displays a different kind of board um, that lists, you know, here are 10 people, but, you know, you'll come on the screen, it'll be 
the 10 people who just completed their first mission for the first time. It's like the new players have just done something. Like, go congratulate them. Here are 10 people who just, you know, helped somebody, who gave positive feedback to someone else in the game. Here are 10 players who just finished mission five. Like, you know, I mean, really randomizing so that they could use it as a social discovery tool rather than as uh, a kind of pick, fixed permanent thing that you would grapple with. So that's like one way I try to... Yep. Um, manage it. We, um, we faced that. We did an ARG here um, with the Smithsonian, um, and it was for middle schoolers. The one advantage we had is because of the age, we had to monitor all the conversation mm. in advance. But what we discovered is that simply telling a kid, you know, could you rephrase that, or maybe that's not a polite thing to say, sort of eliminated all the transgressive behavior. In other words, we didn't have to ban, we only had to ban one troll out of 8,000 players. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah, and it's just, in other words, it takes very little modification to, to get people. And I think about, I always like to go back to thinking about schoolyard play. You know, when I want to think about a game that I'm designing, even if it's a, a video game, how does it relate to our own experiences in schoolyard play? And I think in schoolyard play, there's no one enforcing rules, but there's a way in which it's a self-regulating system. Basically, we all learn over time. If you act too transgressively, you get kicked out of the game. Or, um, And I think we're still trying to figure out in the online space how to model the kind of behavior that kids naturally discover. I don't think I have an answer there for it, but I would sort of keep going back to looking at how in the rest of the world do we manage to, um, to mediate and moderate behavior um, in more productive ways. And so I, that's, that's what I would look for. Um, uh, there was a guy who I almost called on and then I asked for a woman, so I want to <laughs> let him get his question in. Yeah. So how do you think you can uh, encourage playful behavior sort of so that uh, individuals arrive at the game with the right mindset, wherever the game is? Hmm. Um, I mean, but you wanted to talk about, I think, the difference between playful and gameful. So just, just uh, I don't know where this is going to go, yeah. but, you know, when you say, uh, you, how do you encourage them to be, you know, playful or be in a playful mindset? I hate the playful mindset. I'm like the least playful person you'll ever meet. Um, in fact, there's a, there's a, there's a test. Um, it's actually in the book. It's a. It, it, it's to fig. It looks at 24 universally valued character strengths and virtues, and you kind of try to figure out which, which five are most meaningful and valuable to you. And um, out of all 24, playful ranked dead last for me. Um, and I'm like, at last, I can finally convince people that being gameful and playful aren't the same thing. Um, in my mind, playful is improvisational. It's exploratory. The rules aren't defined yet. Um, the you don't have a clear goal. Um, and uh, I like the gameful mindset, which is clear goal, known challenge. Um, you know, uh, sense of purpose. You know, pur purposeful play. I think gameplay is purposeful and and uh, and goal oriented play. Um, so when I think about the mindset I try to get people in, that I'm focused on, um, how can I pose a challenge to somebody that will provoke genuine curiosity? Um, so when I did a game for the New York Public Library, um, they were like, let's do a game to get younger people to come to the library. And they had a lot of bad gamification ideas, like giving yeah. points for checking out books and achievement badges for visiting collections. I thought, well, who who's going to be genuinely curious as to whether they can earn a hundred points by checking out books? Um, so the game I designed for them was uh, we're going to lock you in the library overnight and we're not going to let you out unless you've written a book, and that provoked genuine curiosity in uh, enough people that we had ten thousand people write essays to apply to be one of the five hundred people that we were allowed to lock in the library overnight. Um, so what I think of is how do I provoke curiosity? Um, is this possible? How would you do it? Can I do it? Um, and you, you, you play to find out. You play a game to find out, is it possible? Um, and, and you keep playing the same game to find out if it is possible to do it you know, even better, more effectively, or in different ways. So that's where I would start with make sure there's a challenge people are genuinely curious. And that's why I like to play weird games with people in groups like this. Because I'm like, I think you were probably curious as like, what will happen when we all stand up and start to try to make words? And so I think that that is enough of a hook to get people to actually go into that gameful mindset. Um, yeah, I, I think that the, the other piece is, is in the way you design the game. I mean, I think, 
I, I'm still trying to, to di digest the idea of what, what, what the playful mindset is uh, or isn't. I hadn't thought of it that way. Because I think we all play. I mean, whether that's a mindset or not, we all play. Um, and that for all of us, I think what, what characterizes play above every other behavior we do is, is a certain amount of freedom, which doesn't mean that we don't sometimes freely choose right. to enter into more constrained situations. But I do think it means that the game has got to allow as many individuals as possible to find their way into the game and find their way out of the game. I mean, mm -hmm. I think the best games don't get played the same way by everyone. I mean, even yeah. you watch the finals at, uh, at um, Forest Hills and you saw, uh, you saw two, in Vinci and Serena, or not the finals, the semifinals, uh, in Vinci and Serena Williams, two people who played the same game very differently. And by the way, uh, for anybody who watched it, Serena was in a threat mindset, worried about not winning the four Grand Slams, right. and she played terribly. And her opponent was in a challenge mindset because she's like, I can't win. There's no way I'm going to win. Uh, therefore, I'm just going to enjoy myself and try to do the best yeah. I can. And I was watching that. I'm like, this yes this totally <laughs> proves you know uh, the importance of a challenge mindset and uh serena needs to read super better for yeah. next year <laughs> <laughs> <That's the thing. laughs> well i think that's a perfect place to uh yes. to, i know we're getting the signal about time so um that's a good place to stop so um because I, I well that, now wait they have one oh, final that's right, mission they have to do, that's right they have okay thing to do. uh wait yeah hold on we're gonna like now you can see all the slides that you might have seen in another lifetime where we like talk about all kinds of different things oh my god okay so here we go two things i want to share um so super better is not just a book it is an app and a website um it is free uh we it's now the book's out everything's free um you can get it on the app store you can get it on the play store you can do it online you, there's a there's a web version too and if you sign up or if you've already signed up if you go into your profile and put in the special code uh jane is my ally um there's a whole set of bonus powers bad guys and quests that nobody else gets so i wanted to just let you know about that um and then i have a special speaking of allies, uh, last little kind of your first official super better quest for me to you um, as your ally. Um, so I want you to take your tile, uh, take it home with you, and think of it. You too, Scott. Okay. Uh, think of it as a clue to a secret mission. Do I still have my tile? Uh, yeah, it's okay. there. All right. So uh, it's a clue to secret mission. It's a clue to answering this question: Who could you be an ally to this week? So I have an M. So maybe it's my friend Mark, or maybe it's my mom. Um, if you have like an ex, maybe it's an ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend, or I mean, you might have to think creatively. Um, somebody last night got a cue and they went home on Twitter and said, what the hell am I gonna do with a cue? But uh, be creative. Um, and when you figure out who, you're, who this person is that you're supposed to be an ally to this week, uh, do one small thing to help or show your support, something you were not already planning to do. Um, and it's just something that takes like one minute or two minutes. Um, and I would really love if you will tell me uh, who you figured out your ally is and what you did. Um, if you tell me on Twitter, um, I will follow you back. I'm following back everybody who tells me. Um, if I don't already follow you, I, will, I would like to follow you and hear about your super better quest. So that is my quest to you. And um, we should go chat and sign books. Yeah. Yes? Okay, Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, everybody.